Welcome to Life and Life Only, and today I'm delighted to have with me via Zoom Patrick Humphreys, who is the writer of many books, including Nick Drake, a biography, which is the first biography of Mr. Drake. So, Patrick, how are you doing? Very nice to see you. Yeah, not quite in the flesh, but you know, this is not bad, <laughs> is it? We're on video, yeah. So, obviously, the main focus is going to be Nick Drake today, but I did want to talk about some other stuff. So, could you just introduce yourself and tell us about some of the writing you've done that's not Nick Drake? Yeah, I was a civil servant for many years, but I, I always enjoyed the weekly music press in the UK. And, you know, every week it was NME, Melody Maker, Sounds, Disc, Record Mirror. I never had confidence uh, to submit anything. And then in 1976, NME famously advertised for hip young gunslingers. And I sent in a sample piece very much of the time, which was the enemy writer was far more important than the person he was interviewing, which they liked. And they took me on as a freelance in 76. And then they took Tony Parsons and Julie Birchfield on staff. I was mm. regular freelance. And then in 1980, there was a staff vacancy at Melody Maker, which I took and was there for two years. And then freelance ever since. And... Um, my first book was actually 40 years ago this year, the um, first ever biography of Fairport Convention, which your oh, yeah. Pete Townsend's uh, company published. And then that led to other books about Simon and Garfunkel, Tom Waits, Bruce Springsteen, Paul Simon, Dylan, The Beatles. But I think it was the Fairport connection that got me into, you know, Ireland Records, mm. Joe Boyd, Witch Season, Anthea Joseph. That then led, God, how many years, uh, in the, the late 90s, um, to my thinking about doing a book about Nick. Mm. Well, we reckon it's 25 years since it was published, don't we? And then it came out in 97. So what year did you start? How long was the process? I was trying to think. The circumstances of writing it were very interesting. And I, I actually found, I'd done a book on Paul Simon, which had done very well for Zidrick and Jackson. And... They were asking if I had any other ideas for any books. And Nick's name had come up when I did a, a, the authorised biography of Richard Thompson. And um, I was talking to my friend Peter Hogan, who was a, a literary agent. And um, I said, well, I keep hearing Nick Drake's name, you know, and but I, I, there's so little known about him. I mean, all really at that time, well into the 1990s, really all was known was the Arthur Lubo essay in the Fruit Tree box set and the Nick Kent piece. And I think there's a zigzag piece. So anyway, I said to Peter, I think there might be a book in Nick Drake, but there's so little known about him. And Peter said, um, well, then write a short book. I thought, oh, okay, you know, there's no, it doesn't have to be a magnum opus. But I pitched it to Cedric and Jackson, so I'm interested in doing a biography of a singer-songwriter, Nick Drake, who died in 1974. And I found the letter, I haven't got it with me, unfortunately, but I did find it. But Cedric and Jackson said, thank you, we have no interest in publishing a biography of Nick Cave at present. That's how Nick Drake was. Nobody had heard of him. It's absolutely true. That was quite off-putting because I thought there's so little known. And so what I did being sort of old old school journalist, um, this is all, it it sounds obvious being in in the mid-90s, this was pre-internet, so you didn't sit at your desk and tap in Nick Drake and see what (laughs) was So what I did was I put an advert in Record Collector, the monthly 
UK magazine saying anyone with any memories of, of Nick Great, please contact Patrick Humphries at my home, my then address for yeah. possible biography. And something in the Marlborian, the school magazine of Marlborough, anyone with any memories of N.R. Drake, 1962 to 1966, please contact. Yeah. And um, I got a load of responses, and most of them were from um, old Marlborians. And I, I, I thought, well, that's, that's probably the good place to start at school. But I was quite nervous because, I mean, you have to remember, this is going back to a time when, when the image of Nick Drake was this doomed, haunted, mm. solitary, gloomy figure. Mm. And the very first interview I did was with Jeremy Mason, who was Nick's school friend at, at Marlborough, but also um, famously, um, it was at his uh, parents' place in Aix in, in France, where Nick said. And he was and, featured um, in three hours. Sorry. He was in three hours. Yeah, yes, yeah, he, yeah. yeah. As Jeremy oh said, he's he's up there with Peggy Sue. He's he's one. He's one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He mentioned in the song by Nick. Jeremy lived in Wandsworth, which was just around the South Circular from me, and hmm. where I was living in Brixton at the time. And I thought, well, let's let's go and see Jeremy and and see just what he might tell me about Nick. And I went there, and and Jeremy was a, a very very convivial figure, and and I was very respectful, you know, and, and hmm. this. Again, this image of Nick, you never smiled, and you never listened to Leonard Cohen records. And, hmm. you know, I said, what, what were your memories of, of Nick at Marlborough? And uh, Scott said, oh, we had a great time. You know, we used to go, we went to, I remember we went to see a Bonnar exhibition at, on the South Bank and then got pissed and went to see Inez and Charlie Fox at the Marquee Club. And I thought, oh, wow, you know. Suddenly, Nick became alive. And then talking to people at Marlborough, and then his old housemaster, Dennis Silk, you know, everyone was very cooperative. And, of course, I... I knew Gabrielle because my uncle was the doctor for the British colony in in Burma. And uh, before he died, we'd been in brief communication. Unfortunately, I I never got to talk to him about Nick. But Gabrielle remembered my uncle Jim, James Wallace Lust, who remembered him very fondly, which allowed me to to interview her briefly about the early years. So anyway, I started doing all these interviews and um, gradually, you know, a picture began to emerge, a more rounded picture. Yeah. Just for any of the audience who don't know Nick too well, basically he was recording from 69 or 68, let's say, started. But his first album was 69, made three albums, died in 1974 at the age of 26, and basically faded into obscurity. And then just gradually the interest came. And the one I remember is reading at some point that The Cure said that their name came from A Troubled Cure for a Troubled Mind. Oh, which is really? a lyric. Yeah, I'm, I, I was never I didn't, knew. Yeah, I didn't buy that completely when I first heard no, it. No, no, I'll, I'll take him at his word, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was the band who did Life in a Northern Town, whose name is escaping. Oh, uh, Dream Academy. Yes. Dream Academy, that's it. So, what I wanted to ask you was where did your book sit chronologically in terms of the Nick Drake revival? Were you right in the middle of it? Well, I think in all modesty, I actually began it. I mean, oh, uh, you yeah. know, you're right, there were odd mentions. But if you look at what there was about Nick Drake prior to my book coming out in 1997, mm. you would struggle to fill a, a, a small magazine. I mean, there was very, very little. When my book came out, I mean, it got him on the cover of Mojo magazine. You know, it was very widely and, and well-reviewed. And I think part of the thing was that, you know, I, it was old, you know, Fleet Street foot in the door, cracking people down, you know. And mm. I would interviewed Jeremy at about Marlborough, and then, and then he would say, well, have you spoken to our so-and-so? And you track our so-and-so down. They thought, yeah. you must speak to our so-and-so. And gradually, you get to all these people. 
Yeah. And, um, you know, they, they each each tell you a, a little more about this, you know, enigmatic character. Sure. And gradually you, you begin to get a fuller picture. And I, and I think, you know, in answer to your question, uh, I remember tracking Robert Kirby down, who, of course, was Nick's great friend and Springer Ranger. Yeah, yeah. And he was, I think, a market researcher in Hendon or somewhere. And, you know, God knows I found him. And uh, he said, oh, he was delighted to sit and talk because he said um, everyone thought he was dead because Nick was dead. Everyone thought he was dead. <laughs> and um, he, was a, he was a wonderful, he was a false staff, a wonderful character. And, of course, when my book came out, it led to him getting a lot more work from um, sure. he did string arrangements for Paul Weller and um, a lot of modern groups whose name I've completely forgotten. But it almost gave him a second career. And yeah. um, I think it, it actually did revive interest in Nick to the extent that people realised that it was an extraordinary talent that had been snuffed out too early. But yeah. th there was a life behind that tragic early death. Yeah. Tell you one strange thing. Um, you know, YouTube brings up all kinds of strange, uh, random things. And, and I was searching on Nick Drake, as I often do, and it came up Gabrielle Drake's appearance on This Is Your Life from oh, yes. 1980s. I don't know if you've ever seen that. And I started watching a little bit, and I was thinking, oh, I wonder if Nick will get mentioned. And then, of course, they brought on the parents. They said, here are your parents, Molly and Rodney. And suddenly there's yeah. Molly Drake, because yeah. I like yeah. her music as well, and Rodney Drake. And then they suddenly said, said, oh, you also had a brother, Nick, who tragically died. And they, and they flashed up a picture of Nick. And I was thinking, uh, I was yeah. thinking he had a parallel universe where he hadn't died. He might have been appearing on there. You know, they might have said, well, absolutely, and here is yes. your brother, Nick. And he would have come on yes. with his famous stoop. It's yes. so strange, yes. isn't it? Yes, it is. It's very odd. I mean, then yeah. there was that other clip on, um, on YouTube. Because uh, there is no moving footage of him. That's one of the reasons, I think, why. The enigma and the myth persist. You know, Absolutely, if you want, yes. there's nothing that you can see. And then, of course, that clip turned up about oh, what was it, ten years ago of that figure at a pop festival. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Like walking away from the camera, and it certainly looks like the back of Nick Drake. And if it isn't, you know, it's you know some of those first pictures of Robert Johnson appeared. You know, if it isn't Robert Johnson, it, you know, damn well should be. And if that wasn't Nick Drake, it's, that's probably what you know. The fact you couldn't see his face is perfect. Well, I was going to say, someone, someone in the comments uh, rather cynically said, hmm, a tall, thin guy with long hair and a centre parting in the late 60s. Hmm. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they're already kidding. I but... think this is the thing. I think Nick was very much, you know, I think one of the photos in the book or, or later was, was Nick reading the poems of William Blake, you know, and, and yeah. I mean, you know, who didn't in the 60s? He was very much part of that culture. Hmm. And what I hope the book did was bring him alive in a sense. You know, to give him a life, you know, he, he's forever condemned as being this doomed, gloomy figure. And I mean, anybody dying at 26 is, you know, is far too young. But I think, you know, I, I genuinely think that for the bulk of his adult, well, actually most of his life, he was quite a contented figure. And mm -hmm. I think towards the end, and nobody knows quite when the darkness descended, but I think he was delighted to get a record contract. And I remember, you know, um, I was talking to, uh, I think, Robert Kirby and, one of the few gigs he did, it was some apprentices ball and that they were, they didn't pay any attention to his music and everyone else had written, Oh, you know, it, it destroyed him. You know, and Robert said, no, I, I remember him coming to flat, you know, hooting with laughter. He got, he had his 25 quid, you know, and he was um, yeah, yeah. happy with that, you know, and I think I, I mentioned, I found one of the quotes about Nick in a magazine, a quote about how much he hated public school. And in fact, that mm. was the writer's opinion of the public school. Nick actually quite enjoyed his time. Over. There were so many myths that I had to sort of work my way through, you know, to get yeah. some, something approximating the truth. Yeah, for our overseas listeners, by the way, public school in England 
is basically private school, isn't it? Fee paying. Yes, it's fee paying. You, you I, pay... th- I think I did research why that was, but anyway, most people would probably think of public school as government school, but it's basically the opposite. No, it's, it's Eton and Harrow and Marlborough, which is one of the sort, and you pay a lot of money. It's an upper class tradition, you know, and that fragment of, of Nick speaking, it's what we call a posh voice. I mean, it's I was not... just going to say, yeah, yeah. You know, he sounds quite you know, a minor member of the royal family. I mean, he was he was well brought up, he was well educated, and um, was very much a product of that upper middle class background. Yeah, I only actually heard that fragment recently, I think, about a year ago. Uh, and it's yeah. quite revealing. I mean, he uses one a lot, doesn't he? One is rather yeah. drunk, or yeah. one is... Uh, he sounds like people said he was. He sounds like a, a slightly hesitant, but reasonably cheery person. And I've... I think what happens is when someone dies, I'm, I'm sure you'll, you'll recognise this, people always want to trace back and say, oh, you know, what were the warning signs? But, I mean, you know better than me, but from what I've, everything I've read about, and I've read your book, Trevor Dan's book, I haven't read Gabrielle's book, but um, read loads of other stuff. Uh, uh, there doesn't seem to be anything in his childhood that would point to that, would you say? No, I think it's interesting that, you know, there were four of them. There was Rodney and Molly, his parents, and Gabrielle, his sister, and you see the pictures of them, and they're a very uh, contented family. Gabrielle was that much older than Nick. I don't think she knew him that well. I think by the time he sort of got interesting, she'd left home and had her own career as an actress. His parents were baffled by his work and his mute and that culture, the counterculture that so much part of the late 60s that he was mm. part of. I don't think there were any warning signs there. I mean, on the evidence of the work, I mean, Leonard Cohen shouldn't have made it past 30. It's a way that people read into these things. I think um, I think what's interesting about Nick and the posthumous legacy is that, mm. by all accounts, I think it was Joe Boyd who gave me this figure. I mean, I said during his lifetime, his three records worldwide sold less than nine thousand copies. He sold more records the morning after the Volkswagen ad appeared than oh, he yeah, did yeah. his entire lifetime. And I think it's very easy for people to sort of look for the first signs of that darkness encroaching and all that. But I think he he was relatively happy. And I think the depression that came in, my appreciation is that he did suffer from depression. Now, he was back home living with his parents at Tamworth in Arden, which is quintessentially Middle English village. You know, it, mm. it's got a pub, it's got a church, a village store. It's like a chocolate box you know it couldn't yeah. be more middle english yeah. and um rodney would have taken nick to their local doctor and said you know and he was given these um antidepressants called triptazole and you know in, in the mid-1970s gps wouldn't have known anything about depression you know i mean yeah if he'd been perhaps in london treated more sympathetically and i often thought if he had lived i mean i think it was he he didn't have an aversion to performing because, again, in my book, I pointed out at school he was a member of a number of bands. He enjoyed performing. Even his early solo shows he enjoyed. But such was the record industry at the time. And I remember talking to David Betridge, who, who was Chris Blackwell's number two at Ireland, which was Nick's label for his, his lifetime. And he said we'd have these production meetings every week. And he said there were two questions on the agenda. And it's whether it was Roxy Music or Bob Marley or Fairport Convention or Nick Drake. Is there a single on the album mm. on Ali touring? And in Nick's lifetime, he never released a single. And he only ever played, I doubt if he played more than a couple of dozen solo shows. Yeah. So, you know, his presence, his, his visibility in his lifetime was negligible, really. Yeah, yeah. 
Sorry, yeah. I, I belong a bit. Sorry. No, no, no problem, no problem. So with this revival, so your book came out in 97. There's a wonderful documentary called A Skin Too Few, which I yes. would be a very good sort of next starter kit because I'm sure there were some people who would be watching or listening that don't know him that well. There's another one called A Stranger Among Us, which has got lots of um, the sort of London set and the Cambridge set all oh, in one room discussing oh, him. That one's a bit sort of, it's a less polished one. That Skin Too Few one is very sort of poetic, isn't it? Really I think beautiful. Any, you know, any filmmaker's hampered by, again, by that lack of film footage, you know. And there's only so many shots of autumnal uh, trees in, in English landscapes. There are a lot in that documentary, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. it's great, but, I mean, you know, I think for a full appreciation, you'd, you'd need footage of... And some of it, mm. may, there may well be some. I think it's unlikely, but... Mm. Well, you know, I mean, we were discussing the Beatles. I mean, I have a podcast about John Lennon, and the Beatles has always been a big part of my life. And Beatles fans still believe that there may be stuff that may still come out of the woodwork, you know, old stuff yes. of them in Hamburg. I mean, I think the most miraculous recording of all is the one from the St. Peter's Fate, you know, where John yes. Lennon met Paul McCartney. I mean, the idea that yes. someone recorded it. And in fact, I spoke to one of the two of the quarry men. I was very lucky enough. And Rod Davis told me that the guy had actually recorded 12 songs. He recorded the whole yes. evening and then, of course, wiped yes. Not his fault, but you know he didn't know what was going to happen. But he wiped uh, ten of them. No, I've heard the tape. I've heard um, two minutes. Well, yeah, two minutes. Of it's it. two and minutes. It is, it is undeniably John Lennon. I mean, you know, singing Lonnie Donegan songs is great. Yeah. I'm surprised Sorry. he didn't make it onto Anthology One. But you're right. I mean, you know, I'm a huge Dylan fan, and I mean, mm. even I, you know, we're up to volumes. It's sixteen the bootleg series, mm. and the stuff you didn't even know was rumored it has turned up. You know, I think with Nick, it's it's the Peel sessions turned up. For release, and I just don't think there's much out there. That I mean, Toe the Line was the the last song. I mean, I did say this, and I can't remember it to Joe or to to John Wood when I was doing the book. I said, "Well, you know, you've got these funky, great reel-to-reel tapes. Have you gone through both sides of them and listened?" And they said, "Yeah, we've done all that." But obviously, they hadn't, because it was when they they only flipped it over, and they found at the very end this this lost song, Toe the Line. And when when they found it, I mean, it made it on the BBC News. You know, great wow. lost Nick. Drake you know it was and i think after to my mind as far as i know there's nothing nothing more in terms of film or music but yeah, i often think when people who are around in the 60s or 70s when they die their children or their grandchildren will go through boxes and find tapes you know labeled cambridge 90s you know i mean who knows their parents grandparents wouldn't necessarily have appreciated the value Mm. And the children might not, but they will put something in Mojo or record collection and say, oh, um, you know, there's any value in this. And people go, oh, yeah, just a bit, unreleased, you know, whatever. Well, we don't, we don't know. We don't. Yeah. Well, there's an hour and a half video on YouTube, which I just found recently. And I think a few of them may not have been heard, but then a lot of them are just fragments. And I think mm. Gabrielle was a bit upset about this because when this interest started in the 90s, fans would come and, and I think Rodney or, or Molly or both of them would, would give them bootleg tapes. And then, of course, yeah. years later, people would stick them on YouTube and they're probably not well, the best were, quality. They were, you know? they were delighted. You know, they were proud of Nick and they appreciated just how ignored he'd been in his lifetime. Yeah. And they were so touched that people that come from America or whatever turn up on their doorstep and say, oh, Nick was great, you know, I don't suppose you've got any. And they, oh, they, they, they couldn't be happier that people would be sharing his music, you know. Yeah. But you're right, they turned up. The one I heard was when he was in Aix. It was, I, I'm not sure what happened I mean, to be perfectly honest, you know, the book came out 25 years ago. 
I was thinking of doing an update and at the end of the day I thought well actually to my mind what's happened is there's been all these other books and there's been some some insights and some some things that I didn't get in my book but to my mind the one thing that that would have made me want to do an update was toe the line the, the unreleased Nick Drake song that came to light yeah. a few years ago and yeah. you know for an extra chapter just on one song I didn't think it was some um, worth it but I did get to hear the aches take which I think some of which ended up in one of the posthumous releases, and I can't remember which one. And that was um, in 1967, one of Jeremy Mason's, I think, housemate, I think it's an old Etonian, uh, had a tape mm-hmm. recorder, which was, you know, a very expensive luxury in 1967. And he recorded Nick in, in the kitchen of this farmhouse in France that Jeremy's parents had, which had a fantastic mm-hmm. acoustic. And that's Nick doing some of his own songs and talking and songs by Jackson C. Frank and Dylan. And I was a bit suspicious at first because I thought, well, you know, why has this come to light? But you realise actually, no, it is, you know, it's pristine. And I think I think there's maybe a few tracks that never made it onto the posthumous release, which may turn, I don't know. You know. Yeah, there was, a, there was one called, um, what was that song that he used to gig, but he never recorded it properly? Was it Made to Love Mad? No. Yeah, no, sorry. It's Time of No Reply. Yes. And then there was Made to Love Magic, and they were kind of similar, but, yeah, a few yeah. things turned up. You're right. Now, just um, going back to Jeremy Mason, I think in one of the other books I read, as I said, when we sort of retroactively look at things, we, we kind of say, was there a point? And did Jeremy Mason say anything to you about a change that might have come over, Nick, in X? And Well, I think, he, I think the point he made to me was that he's pretty convinced it was this acid. Yeah. He started taking LSD when... They were either in France or when they went to... Again, you know, my book, you know, this has never been written about the Nick Great went to um, Morocco and um, uh, is believed to have performed in front of Rolling Stones. Right, uh, yeah. Mick and Keith were, were in Morocco and Nick, of course, he had long hair. The Moroccans thought he was a Rolling Stone. And they said, <laughs> yeah, yeah of course. Had, you know, a lovely little vignette. Jeremy's convinced that it was a strong drug that Nick took that sort of tilted... Uh, Mm. things around but he said he was he, you know he, he said he noticed the last time he saw nick was in 72 i think yeah and um he, he'd become this very introverted monosyllabic um figure yeah. mm. and i think jeremy always felt it was it was sort of drug abuse that had done that but yeah that, I think, was speculation I mean, we do know, uh, I hate to go into dark territory, but we do know that he was something to do with Alice Ormsby Gore, I believe, mm. who was involved with Eric Clapton. I think there was heroin that went around that scene. But No, I, there was this big thing that when the book came out, people said how, how I got it all wrong and that they knew the name of the guy who supplied heroin to Nick in, in Tamworth in Arden. And I thought, well, you've obviously never been to Tamworth in Arden because, yeah, I mean, it doesn't... you know, it, it's so English. It's so quintessentially anybody vaguely hippie-ish or, or suspicious would have been, would have had their collar felt with a local Bobby. I mean, yeah. you, know, <laughs> heroin, you know, I personally don't think he, he did take heroin, but mm. certainly there was, I mean, the one group I couldn't get into when I wrote my book was that sort of rather loose Chelsea set of the Ormsby Gores, yes, uh, which yes. I think Trevor Dan did make contact with. I mean, there was this whole thing, I come upon this in my Beatles book, actually, that the aristocracy was sort of slumming with the rock stars in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Very, very well-off people, and people of the privilege thought it was great to go out with a, with a, a guitarist or, or a, a singer. And um, yeah. there was that sort of link between the Chelsea set. 
And Nick was very part of that. Um, how deeply involved he was, I don't know. I think he was quite shy. You know, I think he was always on periphery of things. I, mm. I, I don't think that was um, the drug use. I think he was just—he was quite a shy person. You know. Sure. Well, there's an interesting story. I think Joe Boyd. I'm sure it was in your book about this gangster guy, and they used to go and play liar's dice around his house. And what yes. was almost ironic about that, if you think of Nick's social standing. Joe Boyd posited the idea that this East End gangster might have been the guy to bring him out of it somehow because he's kind of yes, slapped yes. Nick on the back and say, come on, mate, you know, yes, maybe yes, these yes. upper middle class, maybe it's something to do with that culture that maybe you don't want to get so involved. I don't know. But, well, I remember uh, Linda, Linda Thompson, and bless her, she can't remember if she slept with Nick or not, Richard's ex-wife. She said, well, Nick, you know, he, he never spoke. But then, you know, we all thought, oh, wow, that's really cool. You know, yeah, you know, that's it, yeah, yeah. You know, the depression so didn't register. You know, oh, well, you know, he just sat in the corner and, and didn't say, oh, wow. Well, you know, yeah. That was, I think, very much the thing. Yeah, but obviously at some point they would have recognised it had gone a bit further, wouldn't they? I suppose they would, but, I mean, you know, the, the, the big thing that um, people made about Nick and, and at his funeral, there are all these different groups in his life, and it was only at their funeral they came together. Well, I mean, yeah. that's true of most people. You know, I mean, I've got friends who, you know, I will, you know, we will sit and, and bend each other's ears about Bob Dylan until the cows come home. But, <laughs> you know, they don't know my friends who we have other interests or, you know, school friends or whatever. You know, I think we do compartmentalise our lives. And, sure, um, yeah. I think Nick was as much, you know, he, he did that. I think there was this reticence to him. And, of course, you know, we don't know really what he thought because, to my knowledge, he only ever did one interview with Jerry Gilbert That's from right. Sounds. Yeah. Yeah. And I interviewed Jerry for my book, and, and he said, well, I, I wish I could have told you that the room was filled with his charisma when he came in, but, you know, he shuffled in, he sat staring at the, sh at the floor, the answers were sort of monosyllabic, yes or no, and, you know, that was it. Do you think maybe he did have stuff to say? Let's say he, he had found someone who he was very comfortable with. From what you know, I know it's hard to know, but do you think he would have had many insights, like, I don't know, politically or musically? Or... Not more than anybody else who, who was, right, you know, public school, university educated, on the fringes of the counterculture, read poetry, was aware of, uh, was impressed by Dylan. I don't think there's any great um, lost Nick Drake interviews. I mean, I remember Jeremy Mason, you know, who we mentioned earlier, who, who is mentioned in the song Three Hours. Mm. Um, again, everyone thought that was the distance from Cambridge to London, Nick's university. In fact, it was the distance it took. Jeremy and Nick took three hours to get from Marlborough to London. Minor right, point, right, right. I found out. Hmm. And, you know, he, he said one of the last times he saw Nick, and he said, well, what, why am I in there? What's that about? And then he, said, he just he sort of mumbled and muttered. He didn't have an answer, you know. I think if he'd lived, he would have been happy to write songs, not have to perform them. They could have gone out from a music publisher to various different acts, whether mm. it was Nana Muscuri or whoever it was, saying, you know, here's a song you might be interested in. And he could have got quite a nice little income from that without having to go and um, perform and, and sell himself, which is something he obviously wasn't very good at. Yeah, there was a very interesting, on one of those documentaries, I think it's called A Stranger Among Us. I'd like to hear, to get your opinion about this. There's a kind of, a not an argument, but a, a disagreement between uh, Keith Morris, who's the photographer, and there's a fellow whose name I can't remember, who's an Island Records PR guy, maybe, or I can't remember. But And the, uh, the Island Records guy is saying, if Nick was around now, he'd be the sort of person who would have a big home recording set up mm. and would be able to record. And Keith Morris said, no way, you know, he's a poet, not a musician. 
And mm. I thought that was interesting. I don't know, which well, way I'm, do you go I'm, on I'm, that? I don't actually buy the poet thing. I mean, I think, I mean, right, I, yeah. one thing about writing a book about somebody is it puts you off their music for years, you know. Um, right. <laughs> you, spend, you spend every waking moment listening to, for every nuance, for every guitar tuning, for every lyrical reference, you know. And I didn't, I literally didn't listen to Nick for years. And when I did go back to listen to him, I, 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 was, I, I came away very impressed. I mean, after the book came out, I would get tape cassettes, EP, CDs, you know, the new Nick Drake, you know, oh, this is my, you know, this sounds exactly like Drake. And I hundreds of them. I go to ballets about Nick Drake and I, you know, and tribute concerts and cover them. And I thought, actually, the thing about Nick is he is quite unique. Even mm. today, there's nobody sounds quite like him. You know, it was that voice, that guitar, the, the lyrics, that combination that made it. I, I don't rate his lyrics that highly. Right. I know when I spoke to Keith Morris, I mean, at one point, I thought he died very early. He was talking about me doing captions to a book of his Nick Drake photos, so it never, never happened, unfortunately. Right, right. But he said it's extraordinary, you know, all the work that he'd done, album covers for Led Zeppelin and Elvis Costello and... It next the one that people wanted to talk to about, and he said it was you know it was a day's work spread over. He did what two photo sessions worth? No, I think he did and three he, actually. He did he three, did all yeah. three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it was he said in fact it was it was in what you know that was a day's work. It was eight hours. But that's all people wanted to talk about. And I remember there was an exhibition of Keith's photos in in Piccadilly years ago, and I went along, and there were these two young girls, beautiful young girls, when they can't have been more than teenagers, looking at these photos of nick and you know oh you know and somebody, somebody looks like a gq model you know and, and i think that's the thing I think he died looking great you know he, he had a fantastic look to him oh of course and yeah, i speculate yeah. that you know his father was bald and jeremy bless him is bald and if nick drake mm. had lived would he have become this you know rather plump gentleman with receding hair and, and would the, the intensity of the interest still continue you know the fact he died sure. In mysterious circumstances, with only three albums to his name, you know. And at the end of the day, you're only talking about there's barely more than a couple of dozen tracks that his his reputation is built on. Yes, and yet it persists and it survives well into the 21st century. I mean, it'll be what? How many years? Ninety? Don't know. Seventy-four. So Seventy-four. And nearly forty years. Yeah, well, it's coming up to fifty. No, sorry, fifty. Sorry, fifty yeah, years. Coming yeah, up of course. 50 years. And he's still, oh, that's you know, you hear his music on somebody. Email me, so you, you'll like this. Um, a Nick Drake song was heard on EastEnders the other night. Was know, <laughs> British soap opera, you know, he, he does me everywhere. Which I one was on e- I don't know, right. I should find that out. I just want to say a couple of things about that. The Keith Morris photo shoot, I, do, I believe he did do all three, because the first one obviously includes The Running Man. The second one, yeah. I think, was the one on the West Way, brighter yes. later. And then obviously the third one was on Hampstead Heath. And it's yes. interesting that actually those three photo shoots, they do reflect nick because the first one apparently you know they were bouncing ideas brighter later one he's he's sort of still friendly but you can feel kind of distance yeah. and then obviously that pink moon one i think was just keith morris described it as almost doing a still life i mean that might be a bit of yes. exaggeration yes. Yes. but yes, um I think that's true. let's talk about the music i feel like we haven't talked about the music enough so these three albums i was actually on a podcast late last year talking about five leaves left and i think the host asked me oh what's your favorite of the three albums and I know it's a cliche, but they almost are like three children because they've all got three such distinct charms about them. So do you have a yeah. favourite of the three? Not really. I mean, to be honest, I think of them all as one work in the sense. As I say, mm. the actual number of tracks, I mean, I, I do tend to disregard the instrumental tracks on Brighter Later. I mean, I, I have 
songs are the personal favourites. I, I love Fly and, um, you know, Three Hours because I sat another beer with Jeremy. And, you <laughs> yeah. know, they're, they're personal favourites. But, yeah. I mean, I think Five Leaves Left is very representative of its time. You know, it's some um, late 60s singer-songwriter. Mm. And there were so many of them at the time. And this is, this is one of the things that my book, pointed out i mean i remember i interviewed um pete frame from zigzag magazine and zigzag was a monthly magazine it was i suppose the industry comes to rolling stone it was the one that took the music of the counterculture seriously and i said what what were your you know memories or impressions of nick you know when he was alive and he said well i mean you know there was so many records out you know in the same way that you know graham parsons was of interest in that he was is in the birds and um mm died early and nick was on island records and produced by joe boy which is of interest but and i think i found the melody maker the week that pink moon came out i think that same week there were albums by paul simon al stewart james mm. taylor Joni mitchell all these singer songwriters which was a big big thing in the early 70s yeah and nick was sort of you know lumped in with them so uh, again in his lifetime it's one reason why he was so sort of unrecognized in terms of favorites i think there is something quite unique about him, and there's that very English voice and his phrasing mm. and that guitar playing. He had um, apparently very, very long fingers. Mm. So he effectively, when he was playing, you know, it was like two people playing the guitar. Oh, I see. So you've got the guitar, you've got that voice. You have to pay credit to Joe Boyd and, and John Wood, the engineer. They, they capture one man, and it is like... He's sitting next to you when you hear those those records. There's, there's an intimacy and an authority to that music. And he's the one who survives, you know. I mean, his contemporaries are long, you know, Steve Tilston and, I mean, Ralph Mattel, if you think of Ralph Mattel, it's probably Streets of London. It's Nick who's the one that people keep going back to. Yeah, I mean, I should say that um, at the end of last year, I did a video with a friend of mine from Madrid. I used to be in a band in Madrid, and he is a master guitarist. And he did a kindly did a video where he was demonstrating the tunings and the styles. He wanted to learn a song to play live, and he, I think he learned cello song, which is one of the very best guitar ones. And he said the guitar took forever, but then he said, "God, to sing along with it, because the the vocal doesn't really match the guitar." Like, I can't really explain it, but no, meter wise, I mean, it doesn't. I spent hours trying to people are obsessed with the guitar tunings yeah and i don't play and, and, and it got to the point i thought well i mean that's of interest to guitarists you know he did something unique I'm, I'm putting it down to his long fingers you know let's leave it at that you know but there is something i mean he does fit on one level he fits that mold of you know john martin burt yanch john renborn but i still think you know it's difficult for me because Basically, my entry point was Family Tree originally, which I didn't actually get madly into. Then it was that Skin Too Few, that great documentary. And when suddenly when you hear, I think it's From the Morning, which is the last track on Pink Moon, they play it over this, as you said, this sort of very pastoral mm -hmm. thing. And it suddenly takes mm -hmm. on a different quality. And then they play Northern Sky, which I think is lovely, over the footage of them in Burma. And you've got Nick playing in the sea and yeah. everything. And that's always going to tug at the heartstrings. That's the only moving footage, isn't it? Him's a little blonde-haired baby. Yeah. So um, uh, it's hard. It's maybe it's hard for me to divorce the story from the music. But let me ask you one thing: Do you find Pink Moon depressing to listen to? If you divorce it from the story, if that's possible, I think it's very difficult to divorce it. I mean, I, yeah, I interviewed is, <laughs> um, uh, the press officer, uh, David Sanderson, who unfortunately is no longer with us. Right. Um, Nick's press officer, and he, and he said, "Yeah, I mean, he he shuffled in this rather scruffy-looking figure. He left the." takes to the album, the desk of the receptionist and vanished, and that was it. And that was Pink Moon. 
And then he went into this deep, well, decline. That was in, what, 1973 when he died in 1974. Yeah. I don't think anybody really saw him after that. So I think it's very difficult to dissociate Pink Moon from the end. And I think particularly when when the Fruit Tree box set came out that included that Black Eyed Dog, which... um, we believe was up until toe the line we believe was the last song to ever recorded and there's that haunting robert johnson Hound on my trail aspect to it it's pretty doom and gloom i don't see a lot of light coming into pink moon except maybe from the morning and it was interesting that that was the last song because that's yeah like, now yes. we rise and we are everywhere because that's written on his yes. tombstone yes. very good yeah. point yeah. if you go to tamworth underneath the tree you'll yeah. find nick drake's grave and um that's what they've, they've got engraved on his headstone. So, yes. Or is it now we rise and we are everywhere? Now we rise and we are everywhere, yeah. So, yes, they obviously felt there was some something positive to be salvaged from it. Because what's astonishing is those four songs, I mean, I think Joe Boyd apparently came back and was present when he recorded those four. And the story goes that he was too traumatised to do the guitar and the vocals. And obviously when you hear Black Eyed Dog, it, it's such an outlier. But yes. then you hear, um, you know that one, Rider on the Wheel? Yes, yes. He sounds so calm. He has this wonderful, yeah. calm voice. It's quite yes. astonishing. If you think about, obviously, it's hard to imagine what it must have been like to be there with him, but it's clearly in distress. Yes, it's funny it's that strange, the, the jokes of Warner Brothers, and he, he turned up recently. There's a wonderful documentary about Aretha Franklin recording oh. her gospel album. And Joe Boyd's there because he was at Warner Brothers at the time. In, oh, yes, in that's right. And you see Joe with his shoulder-length hair looking, looking very groovy, as indeed he still does. He has <laughs> right. Sure, there's a portrait of him in an attic somewhere that's horribly scarred. He looks remarkably good for his age. Uh, yeah, Joe, of course, went to, to America. And I think Joe was one of the few people who Nick could um, respond to when he went into that dark period of, of his life to sit on the other side of the glass and hear those songs coming out. And they obviously came from a very dark place, a very deep well inside Nick. Yes, you know, it should be said that whatever it was that dogged him at the time of his life was was, was largely unrecognised. You know, people yeah. wouldn't have known that he was depressed or he was, he was a bit cast. Oh, he doesn't say much, you know, in a very sort of quite light-hearted way. There was obviously mm. some sort of illness. And when, when that came into his life, why that came into his life? I mean, if he'd had more recognition, it might have prolonged his life a bit. I mean, it's all speculation, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard to know, isn't it? It's interesting because I've actually, in my own life, I've had episodes similar to that where I, um, it's a sort of mixture of anxiety and depression and I can't quite face people. So I, I actually feel like I have a small, a small inkling to what he might have been feeling. But the difference mm. is that he seemed to be feeling it permanently for, let's say, the last year. I don't know how yes. long. Yes. It is interesting though, isn't it? Because he actually died nearly three years after Pink Moon came out. I think yeah. we always imagine that it was soon after, don't we? But it was actually... I mean, it, obviously, it happened fairly quickly, but it, it seemed to be quite drawn out. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things in um, Gabrielle, well, uh, Gabrielle's book, the book that came out, Remembered for a While. Oh, that's it, Remembered for is, a While. Is the big book. Now, because yeah. obviously it was Gabrielle, she got her father's um, letters and diaries. Mm. And to be honest, when I read it, one of the most depressing things was just how patient Rodney was with Nick. Mm. And, you know, he'd ring... And say, oh, I've run out of petrol, can we get me? And he'd, well, they fill the fucking car up with petrol. Oh, yeah, 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 no, yeah. You know. And he was so patient. That was the saddest thing. I mean, there's obviously this, they had their only son, was obviously talented, 
but he couldn't get it out somehow. And mm. uh, it must have been very difficult for them. And I think, you know, Molly said she read the, uh, was it the last book Nick was reading, Mrs. Cyphers, the Camus book about oh, that's right. putting yeah. the stone up the hill and Nick falls down to try and gain some insight to, into her son's early death. And it must have been heartbreaking for them, you know. Yeah. But then going back to what we were saying earlier, you know, they were so touched when people came to their door and said, oh, you know, we've come from, you know, Albuquerque or Bremen or whatever, you know, we love Nick's music, you know, and, and just, to, just to have a look around and, you know, his room and everything. And they, they were so mm. touched by that degree of interest in his work. Yeah. In your book, did you speculate about his death or would you rather not do that? My impression and this is without access to the medical records, because only the family would have that. And I believe, and I'm sure, Richard Morton Jack, who's doing the authorised Nick Drake biography, yes. will have had access to those and may well present a different opinion. My impression was that Nick was on these very, very heavy antidepressants called triptazole. I interviewed Nick Kent, who was the NME journalist who wrote very poignantly about Nick very soon after he died. Yeah and was famously no stranger to drug use. He knew whereof he spoke. Yeah, and I, yeah. I remember talking to Nick Kent down there, he was living in Paris, uh, talking down the line, and he said, well, they gave me old to get me off heroin. It's the worst fucking drug I've ever taken. Oh, right, right, right. And so if Nick was on those, my impression was that he was on these antidepressants. He woke up and he couldn't remember how many he'd taken. And he took some more, then he woke up again and was very befuddled. My impression is, and I'm prepared to be corrected, that it was an accident. It was an accidental overdose of a prescribed antidepressant. That's yes. my impression. No, no, fair enough. Well, I think he was on. Um, I think he was on a mixture of three. Is that right? I, I can't remember. Possibly, I can't. I can't on this. Right, right. So, as I say, a family doctor in Middle England in the mid 1970s presented with a patient who suffered from depression, they would just cut whatever the, was around at them. You know? Yeah. So it could have been a factor. Because I think depression was always known as melancholia, wasn't it? And I think it was almost felt a, a bit of a teenage condition, just from yes. what I've read, you know, it's something, oh, or, don't or worry, you'll grow or out of it. condition, yes, you know. Yeah, you'll grow out of it, don't worry, news. that kind of thing. I think Richard's book really will, he's got to people, because it's authorised, he's got the cooperation of the estate, Gabrielle, mm. and also, you know, not undermining his his research abilities. You know, he can Google stuff. When mm. I was doing my book back in, in the mid-90s, the internet was this, it was science fiction, you know. Yes. It, was, it hadn't really properly been invented. And it mm. was tracking people. But I, I'm very pleased with it. I think, you know, I got to people who spoke very eloquently and very poignantly about Nick. And, mm. I mean, the, the one thing that always annoyed me in, in the intervening years Whenever anything was written about Nick, whoever the writer was would say, well, of course, we now know that so-and-so and so and so And I said, well, the only reason you know that is that I tracked the person down who yeah. was at that gig, who was at that session. And, you know, I've never acknowledged. That upset me. But it's just in closing, my I think one of my... I think what put it in context was I interviewed Dave Pegg, who was the Fairport Convention uh, baseball... Well, still is a Fairport Convention. But he played on Brighter Later. Yeah. And we met at the Half Moon in Putney, which is the great folky sort of pub in, in London. Mm. And I said, now, you know, Nick Drake, oh, yeah, Bryce, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a millionaire. I said, well, what are your memories of Brighter Later, Nick's second album, you know, he played bass on it. And we had a chat, and he, and he came out with this great place. He said, honestly, he said, if, if I was known as such a classic album, I'd have paid more attention at the time. 
<laughs> and I think right. that you know that that was Nick's yeah. reputation then. You know, he wasn't this cult figure. He was a a promising singer songwriter. Oh, I think had yeah. he lived, he'd be so happy with the interest and the attention paid to his music. Oh, can you imagine? Yeah, in a parallel universe, if he could come back somehow, <laughs> yes, yes, how yes. shocked he would be. <laughs> get him he onto would. a computer and get him to Google his own name, and he'll go, "What?" Yeah, I mean, the last time I looked, there were <laughs> twenty-four million. You know, Something like that. Yeah, I mean, there's a nice Richard Thompson quote because Richard played on. Uh, oh, I was a couple of songs with Nick. Time has told me he played on played guitar. Yeah, and. When he got his, his medal from Her Majesty the Queen, mm. uh, he posted on his um, Facebook page, I mean, what was it like? And he said, well, at least, at least you didn't ask me what it was like working with Nick Drake. Oh, the Queen. <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> he, he's become this sort of totem. And, um, yeah. I just think it's so, so I never lived to see it. You know, he was you know very, very talented. He was, mm. you know, by all accounts, you know, good company, you know, nice bloke. And um, it just all went horribly wrong. And, whether it was suicide, whether it was actually, you know, he was taken far too soon. The positive note, you know, yes. three albums, and, and they are they are still quite inimitable. You you go and seek them out, and to this day, there is nobody who sounds like Nick Drake, and that's quite a testament. Yeah, I think that guitar, that almost posh-sounding voice, in fact, you know, it's almost yes. like well-spoken yes. singing voice. Yes. And I, I agree with you about the lyrics. I think they don't all stand up, but on this podcast I was on, we sort of said that, Five Leaves Left, some of the lyrics are good, but I think if... I don't agree that they were predicting the future because I think he was living out a kind of... They were sort of doomed poet lyrics almost. And I think when he gets to Pink Moon, I think I think he really is writing about himself. It is the voice of yes. experience, you know. I think, well, I think Five Leaves Left, the future's lies ahead and open, you know. I think there's mm. tremendous potential. He's got, he's got an album under his belt. He's on, a, on one of the most prestigious labels, certainly in the UK. He's got tremendous support from his producer, from his management company. You know, yeah, I think the future they bright ahead. I, I don't see all those indications of doom and gloom on, mm. on five of these days. Even on Bryce later, you know, I think there's um there's still hope. I think when the record sales didn't match his enthusiasm, that's when the war went a bit wrong. But you know, who's to say? I mean, uh, the interesting thing about Nick is that you know his career only began after he died. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Just before we finish, actually, yeah, you mentioned um, there's a Facebook group called Nick Drake, an authorised biography, and the guy who runs it is Richard Morton Jack, and he seems a very, very dedicated guy. He posts nearly every day, and you post on there as well, which is great. So we've got that to look forward to. And um, please tell us about the project you're working on, because it's dear to my heart. So Well, yes, <laughs> it's very difficult getting a book published in the 21st century. I've never had an agent, and I just... Uh, now, publishers will only accept submissions through agents, so I've got to try and find an agent before I can do a submission. Funny enough, just, just as a, an afterthought on Nick, Bloomsbury published the Nick Drake book in 1997, and uh, the other one of their other books that came out that year was the first in a long sequence of uh, novels by a female writer called J.K. Rowling. Oh, and she received the same advance as I did for Nick, the first Harry Potter book her advance was £2,500, as was my advance for um, for Nick Drake. And I was in touch with her agent recently. She said, I'm very happy to supply an autographed first edition of my Nick Drake book for an autographed first edition of Harry Potter. But I haven't heard back from it yet. <laughs> Fair enough. No, it, it's getting harder and harder. And um, I did a book about the Rolling Stones that came out in 2019. 
and they focused very much on their activities in 1969, which is incredible, even by their standards, mm. an incredibly uh, busy year. And I thought well, the only place to go after that is the Beatles. And um, mm. over the years, I spent many, many hours with Paul McCartney and interviewed George and Ringo once. So I've got interviews. I missed John by a couple of months right. when I was at Melody Maker. He was due back in the UK in early 1981 for a private trip. My editor at Melody Maker, Ray Coleman, knew John very well, and he promised he'd get me to see John, but obviously yeah. that never happened. Yeah, but I interviewed Paul many times and Jordan Ringer. So I thought, well, there's material there for a Beatles book, and there's, there's surprisingly few Beatle biographies on the market. There are books about somebody who's delighted to say he's now got to the point where he's got 400 pictures for a book about the Beatles drinking tea. There are books about their philosophies, their musical equipment, their chauffeurs written the book, their hairdressers written the book. Yes. But there are surprisingly few biographies to take it from... I've dated from Ringo's birth in, in 1940 as the oldest Beatle yeah. up until 1970 when they broke up. The first part of my book is 1940s, 1963, which examines the Englishness. And the mm. second part, obviously, is the conquering of America, British way. The third part goes from 1970 to tomorrow because there, are, there is this extraordinary interest in the Beatle brand. And yeah. as we were saying earlier, you know, we've had eight hours on a Peter Jackson's uh, film. We had the Let It Be box set. Paul McCartney's lyrics, you know, it is mm. the gift that keeps on giving. And then, oh, of yeah. course, you've got, it'll be 60 years in this October since Love Me Do, then it's 60 years next year since Beatlemania. You know, it just goes on and on and on. Absolutely. And it is it is a compelling story. You think you know it all, but to go from Love Me Do to Strawberry Fields Forever in four years. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you're never going to get that again. You know? Absolutely, yeah. So that, yeah, and you, you told me earlier you hadn't seen Get Back, so you've got an absolute treat. I've got a treat coming, yes. Yes, you I have. devote the whole day to that, yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> but with all these things, you know, it's just, I mean, I I just read recently, You Never Give Me Your Money, it's a book about the Beatles. And oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. It talks about all the all the messiness that happened, but the thing that came out of it was, um, you know, all you have to do is stick the records on and everything else goes out the window, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, it's but, same with Nick know, Drake. Just all, put five yeah. leaves left. Put all the any of the albums on and just revel in it because it's fantastic. Yes, but then of course you're not the person making those albums. I mean, you know, mm. you're you're. Um, if I had written Mr. Tambourine Man or Chimes of Freedom, I'd have said, right, that's it, fine, I'm done. Yeah, you know, Bob did that when he was 23. Uh, I mean, there are some people that touched by the hand of God. I think Bob was Nick. Um, I think the finger was hovering. I think he needed yeah. to live a bit longer. The Beatles, yeah, there's that extraordinary. Again, you go from that arc, Love Me Do, to Pepper, and then after that, there's the White Album, then there's Abbey Road, which is, you know, the second side of Abbey Road, the suite. That means just as good as it gets, you know. I think that's the most gorgeous Beatles music, yeah, even if Abbey yeah. Road isn't everyone's favourite album, yeah, which it is I a lot. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, George Martin does these little bits in the middle, and there's, there's all these, no, it's just, it's, it's sublime. Yeah, it is. It, they, they knew what they were doing. But then, of course, on the other hand, then they have to go to these business meetings, you know, and then Yoko would be saying to John, oh, you know, you're an artist, you shouldn't be wasting your time with this pop group. And then the yeah. manager, the men in suits would be saying, oh, you know, your percentage, you know, the pressure's on. And I think the thing is, you have to consider just how young they were. George was 26 when he left the Beatles. Yes, that's Now, right. I don't know what you were like at 26, but I was, <laughs> I was struggling to, you know. And he was, you know, when you think what they'd done, they'd been to the mountaintop. Yeah. And, you know, it's an eternal, eternal credit. They carry on, you know. You see McCartney, you see the Stones. I mean, it's what they do, and they're great. They're great at what, at what they do. They're fantastic at what they do. To be in the same room as Paul McCartney or the Rolling Stones, hearing them do 
you know, Paul does a bit of the, the Medley from Abbey Road, Mick does, you can't always get what you want. It's fantastic. You know, the old hairs yeah. on the back of the neck of Jungle Tango. Yeah, I mean, I was born in 75, but my... I discovered, I suppose I'd say, I discovered the 60s about the late 80s with the Beatles, but all the other ones. And it's just been far and away my favourite music. I'd even put Paul Simon in that bracket. I mean, the amount of oh, classic, the amount of classics he'd written by the time of Bridge Over Troubled Water, and he must have been whatever he was, 26, oh, 27. Yeah, I mean. yeah. I mean, you, you know, Bridge Over Troubled Water. I mean, uh, I, I ain't a problem with that and, and yesterday and the, these a white shirt of pale. Mm. You're so used to bad cover versions and you're so used to hearing it in elevators, when you hear the original versions, they're so fantastic. Yeah. And to think they did that when they were in their, like, in their 20s, you know. Yeah. I mean, people always banging on about the 60s, but, I mean, I'm old enough to remember it. And, yeah. and it was great because you never knew. You know, you turned the radio on and, you know, you'd be getting two singles a year from the Beatles that weren't on albums. You'd be getting the Stones, the Who, the Animals, Van yeah. Morris. You know, it's one after the other. And a lot of it really stands up incredibly well today. Some of it... Not so good when the old drugs kicked in and <laughs> yeah. let's do one song over the entire side of an album, you know. Yeah. That's when it all got a bit tricky, but um, no, it, it was great. And I mean, Nick was very much part of that. He was a huge Dylan fan, mm. you know, Jackson C. Frank, Bert Yanch, John Remborn, all those people, those troubadours in the 60s mm. he admired. And um, well, had he lived, I think he would have been a, uh, I'm not sure a major talent, but I think he would have been a very, very good minor talent if he'd lived. Yeah. And it's just us we never got to know. So. Absolutely. There we are. All right, listen, thank you very much. And when your Beatles thank book you. is done, I will get you on my other podcast for sure. <laughs> we'll try and get, get when Richard's book's out in oh, September yes. or whatever. He's on Facebook, track him down, and I'm sure he'd be delighted. I think I've already asked him. I've never already asked him. I got it all wrong, and um, he got it all right. And he, he said, I think he has got some interesting new stuff. But nearer the time, when, when the book's in the shop, he'll be very happy to talk about it. Fantastic. But it's right. um, lovely to talk to you, and thanks very much for your patience. And um, okay. Sorry, where are you based? Where actually are you? Tunbridge, Kent. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Can you just stay on the line, and we'll just uh, do the official sure. goodbye and then have a chat. So thanks very much, and good luck. afternoons in the south of France after lunch everybody very relaxed and I played my guitar and Nick uh, Drake very quietly in the corner listened and applauded and then somebody asked him to play and that was a, an extremely moving experience played some Billy Holiday and some blues. I'd never met anybody of my age who could do anything that well. Just magically get these sounds that are, you know, so strong flying across the 